Kindly be seated. If you could kindly leave your Bibles open in our Old Testament reading, Daniel chapter 9, which can be found on page 889 of the Church Bible. Daniel chapter 9, page 889. And inside your Bible, in the bulletin that you've been given, in the middle there's an outline that you can follow as we look at our passage. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have graciously chosen to speak to us through your word. Father, we thank you that by reading and reflecting on your word, we can come to know you better. And by knowing you better, know how to serve you better. And Father, I pray that you help me preach your word faithfully, humbly, and clearly. May all this be for your glory and your glory alone. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, imagine that you have had a terrible toothache for a very long time. You finally decide to go to the dentist, something I'm sure none of us enjoys that much. After all, who likes to go and see someone who intentionally causes pain and is paid for it? You decide to go at the earliest time possible, but when you get there, you find out that there are no empty seats. You have no option but to wait for your turn. Moments and hours pass, and patients go in to the office and come out, but your turn doesn't seem to come. And you are in great pain. What is worse, you do not know how long you have to wait. Then you notice that the secretary is not behind her desk, and her notebook with the list of all the patients is wide open. Slowly and quietly you approach the desk, and you have a quick look at the page. You realize that there have been 20 people ahead of you, but you have already counted 19 who have gone in. Suddenly, you find a reason to rejoice. Once a person who is in comes out, then it is your turn. And the person does come out, but no one calls your name. Moments pass, but nothing happens. Think of how you would be feeling. You've been waiting for that moment to go in and be free from your misery. What would you do when that doesn't happen? Well, you might kneel in front of the secretary and beg her to let you go in. You might even knock hard on the doctor's door and ask him to have mercy on you. Have that image in your mind and you start to understand just a little bit of what Daniel might be feeling in our passage. In verses 1 and 2, we see the context for the whole chapter. In verse 1 we read, In the first year of Darius the son of Ahiasuerus. You see Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and their majestic kingdoms are now part of history. There is now a new dynasty, that of the Persian Empire. And this is a very important fact that would help us understand Daniel's actions. You see, Daniel and God's people have been through a lot under the Babylonian rule. And he must have been asking himself this question now. How long would they have to wait 
before God allows them to return to their homeland. And there was only one place he knew he could go to find those answers, God's word. It was God's word which could provide both comfort during those difficult moments and also provide an insight about the events to come. So Daniel starts reading God's word, and as our passage tells us, he finds these in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 25, God tells Israel that because of their disobedience, he would raise up King Nebuchadnezzar, who would destroy the city and who would take them to exile. And this would continue for 70 years. And at the end of that period, God would bring judgment on the king himself. Now we see the significance of Darius' rule for Daniel. Based on Jeremiah, the exile would be coming to an end after the Babylonians' rule is over. Then the question is, how would Daniel respond in response to what he has just read? Well, the answer comes to us again from the book of Jeremiah, this time from chapter 29, where God says that after 70 years, he would fulfill his promises to Israel by bringing them out of the exile. His people would call upon him and pray to him, and he would hear them when they seek him with all their hearts. And this is exactly what Daniel does. Verse 3, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. You see, Daniel's way of praying shows his obedience to God's word and also his humility. Fasting, wearing sackcloth, and putting ashes on one's body were signs of mourning. And Daniel being reminded of the reason for which God's people are in exile, mourns. He wants to ask God for mercy. And we see that right from the start, he keeps referring to God by his personal name, Yahweh, which in our English translation has been rendered as Lord, all written with capital letters. Daniel, in his prayer, does three things. Number one, praising God. Verse 4. O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and a steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. You see, calling God awesome and great refers all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7, which served as a reminder for God's people that their God is mighty and all-powerful, and they need not be afraid of any other nations. The second part is also from the same chapter. The God that Daniel worships is a God that makes covenant with his people. As we see in Deuteronomy chapter 28, these covenants involved both blessing and curses for God's people, depending on whether they were obedient or disobedient. And the fact that God's people are now in exile shows that they have been the recipient of the curses. But thankfully, all is not lost. God has provided a way for them to repent. In Leviticus 26, we read, 
that God tells his people that if they confess their sins and sins of their fathers and humble themselves, then he would remember his covenant with them. And this is the second thing Daniel does in his prayer. From verse 5 all the way to verse 15, confession. Notice that in the prayer, Daniel uses the pronoun we rather than they, which means he includes himself among the people. Although in the previous chapters, we have seen that Daniel has faithfully obeyed God and is blameless before his sight, Daniel realizes that he is still a sinner. So he confesses his own sins as well as those of Israel. Verses 7 to 11 show the contrast that exists between God on one side and his people on the other. Verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. To us, O Lord, verse 8, belongs open shame. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness. You see, God, in dealing with his people, has always acted rightly. He has kept the side of the covenant he made with them as long as they were obedient. Yet the people's response has been nothing but shameful. No matter where they lived or no matter who they were, they all have broken the covenant. And none of them can really justify their actions by claiming ignorance. Because through the prophets, God had given them his laws, commanding them to live by them, if they were to receive the blessings of the covenant. Yet they have rebelled against him. But in spite of all their acts of defiance, God is still a God of mercy and forgiveness. You see, he could have destroyed them in an instant, but has not done so out of his grace and mercy. In verse 12, as well as in verse 14, Daniel points out the fact that even in bringing judgment upon God's people, he has acted rightly. God could not have gone against his own word. He had promised them blessing if they obey him and curses if they don't. And as verse 13 shows us, what makes the situation even worse is that even after being judged by God, they still haven't asked him for mercy and they have not repented of their ways. Verse 15 makes the sin of Israel even greater because their God had shown them his great power by redeeming them from Egypt. His name had been made known to all people as the mighty God who rules over everything. And in spite of knowing this great, gracious act of God, they have turned against him. When we come to verse 16, we see a shift happening from confession to supplication which is the third thing Daniel does in his prayer. In verses 16 to 19, he brings his request before God. Given the depth of human sinfulness that Daniel had witnessed among Israel, he knows 
that he cannot ask God for anything on the basis of any form of goodness on God's people or even his own, because there has been none. He can only ask God to act by appealing to him, his reputation, his character, and his name. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts. Verse 17, for your own sake. You see, Daniel is imploring God to turn his righteous anger away from them. Because after all, Jerusalem is his holy hill, his city. Because of Israel's sin, both people and Jerusalem are in such a pitiful state that people of all the surrounding nations point to them and mock them. So Daniel, as God's servant, like Moses who interceded on behalf of God's people, now does the same and appeals to God to act. Verse 19 shows the urgency of Daniel's prayer. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Before we see how God responds to Daniel's prayer, it would be good to see the implications of this section for us. First, it is the reading of the scripture that results in prayer. Reading God's word would lead us to pray, to praise him when we come to know him better, to thank him when we realize what he has done for us, to ask him for mercy when we realize our sinfulness, and to tell him about the longings of our hearts when we realize that he listens. You see, God's word brings comfort in moments of distress and rebukes us when we sin. We do not need sackcloth and ashes, but we can approach prayer with the same attitude and humility that we see in Daniel. You see, Daniel starts by praising God, remembering him for who he is. And then he spends a very long time confessing his sins before he even begins to bring his request before God. And I wonder whether that is true of us as well. Or we see confessing our sins as a one-liner to say so that we can jump to the long list of our request. The prayer that Jesus our Savior has taught us has the same elements. It has adoration and praise in our Father in heaven hallowed be thy name, confession in forgive us our sins, supplication in give us today our daily bread, and thanksgiving, which is implied in realizing how dependent we are on him for everything we have. Of course, we know that reading the Bible and prayer do not make us Christians. We do not do them to earn anything from God. We do both of them in response to his grace that has been shown to us in Christ. So how does God respond to Daniel's prayer? 
we see in verses 20 to 23 that God had not waited for Daniel's prayer to come to an end before responding to it. And this means that God is more than ready to respond to his people when they humbly call upon him and appeal to his character and seek to honor his name. What should interest us here is that Daniel's way of pointing to the time that he sees Gabriel at the time of the evening sacrifice. But Daniel has been in exile for a very long time. There is no temple, and so there is no sacrifice. But here we see that within this strange country, Daniel has still preserved his identity despite being exposed to the Babylonian culture and customs. Well, we might be tempted to skip this part and move on to the next section, but that would be failing to recognize a very crucial part of God's message to Daniel. Notice the word therefore in verse 23. Daniel is to consider the word and understand the vision on the basis of what comes before. He is greatly loved. What assuring and comforting words they must have been for Daniel. Because in spite of all the sins that God's people had committed throughout the years, God is still merciful and shows his love and grace to those who humbly repent and confess their sins. We now come to the final section of our passage, which I assume many of you have been waiting for. But before we have a look at it, let me tell you a shorter story. Sherlock Holmes, the famous detective, and Dr. Watson, his assistant, decide to go on a camping trip. After dinner, they lay down for the night and go to sleep. A few hours later, Holmes wakes up, and he also wakes Watson up. He says, Watson, I want you to look up at the sky and tell me what you see. Watson replies, I see millions of stars. Holmes says, and what does that tell you? Watson thought for a moment and said, well, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and possibly billions of planets. Horologically, I infer that the time should be approximately a quarter past three. Theologically, I think it shows that there is a God who has created everything, and compared to him, we are very small and insignificant. Meteorologically, I suspect that we'll have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you, Holmes? Holmes was silent for a minute, and then he said, Watson, you idiot, someone has stolen our tent. You see, Watson had tried to work out all these different uh, small aspects of what he was looking at, but he missed the big picture. He missed the main point. Throughout history, people have tried to make sense of this passage by trying to work out all these numbers and figures and what they represent. And in doing so, they have missed the big picture. Here we have a 70-week period 
which is then divided into three sections, seven weeks, 62 weeks, and one week. And people have realized that they cannot be literal weeks because it would be a very short time for all these events to happen. So they have taken each week to represent a period of seven years, which would make the whole period 490 years. But the question is, what is the starting point? The answer comes to us in verse 25. From the going out of the world to restore and build Jerusalem. But then the question is, which word are we talking about? Is it the word of God in the book of Jeremiah? Or is it King Cyrus' decree in which he allowed the people in exile to go back to their land and rebuild the temple? Same questions have been asked about the nature of the covenant and the identity of the anointed one. But I think the right way of understanding these verses is to remember that they come in response to Daniel's prayer. You see, Daniel had two major concerns. On one hand, it was God's people and their sins. And on, this, on the other hand, it was the destiny of God's temple and his city. There is also one more thing. Have a look at verse 23 again. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Well, we see nothing about vision in Daniel's prayer. But if you remember from last Sunday's sermon, in chapter 8, Daniel was troubled by the vision that he had in which an evil man rises himself up against God and his people. What Gabriel is about to say is connecting these two, Daniel's vision in chapter 8 and his two concerns in his prayer in our passage. You see, God is telling Daniel that he has not abandoned his people and Jerusalem his city. They will continue to be part of God's plan in fact, at the end of this period, six things are going to take place. Transgression will be finished. Sin has an end put to it. Sin will be paid for. Everlasting righteousness will be brought in. Visions and prophecies will be sealed or fulfilled. And finally, a most holy will be anointed. These are the ultimate goals that God would achieve. Did you notice that the first four answer Daniel's first concern? What will happen to the problem of human sin? God's answer, it will come to an end. Regardless of whether the word in verse 25 is God's word or a royal command, one thing is for sure. Jerusalem, the city of God, and the temple would be rebuilt. And that was Daniel's second concern. What would happen to God's city and temple? God's response, they will be restored. But this would not be the end. It is going to be a troubling time. The city and the temple, which have been restored, will once again be destroyed. Then, this is the, then there is this final enemy that rises up 
who is ultimately defeated and destroyed. Well, if we look carefully at what we can know for sure, we can see a pattern that keeps repeating. Think of the prophecy of Jeremiah. Israel continuously sinned against God, and so God raised up Nebuchadnezzar as his agent for punishing his own people. But it was only for a limited time, and finally King Nebuchadnezzar became the object of God's judgment as well. Or think of the vision in chapter 8. An evil man rises himself up against God and his people, only under the sovereignty of God. And it only happens for a limited time. And then God finally defeats and destroys him. And we have the same thing in our passage. So what is the main point that we should not miss? We know that there is one point in human history that all these events find their true fulfillment. All of God's promises, putting an end to sin, bringing in eternal righteousness, and vindicating his name, would all be seen as accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. You see, God's message to Daniel is this, that returning from the exile is not the ultimate goal. Yes, God's people would one day return to their homeland and they would rebuild the temple, but that is not going to be the end. There will be difficult times ahead. Temple would be destroyed again. Enemies of God would rise again, but eventually, God will bring all his promises to fulfillment. Daniel did not see that time. He did not even know when it was going to happen. He did not witness the complete fulfillment of God's promises. Yet he knew that he could trust God, for he is the Lord over the whole history. He is the one who knows the end from the beginning because he has decreed them all. And my dear brothers and sisters, we are in a far better position than Daniel. We know the things that he longed to see and died without seeing them have already happened because we are on the other side of the cross. We know that Christ has died on our behalf and has won a decisive victory over sin, death, and Satan. But like Daniel, there are things that we do not know. As our New Testament passage shows, we do not know when Christ would come back. Throughout centuries, many people have tried to calculate the time that Jesus would come back. But he himself has told us that no one knows the hour or the day except the Father. We know that Christ has paid the penalty for our sins once for all but sin has not disappeared. As Christians, we still struggle with sin. We still see and feel the effect of sin on our world. And so like Daniel, we long for Christ's return when sin and evil would disappear forever. Like Daniel, when we see the suffering of God's people, when we hear about the persecutions that our brothers and sisters face all over the world, we also cry out, 
How long, O Lord? But like Daniel, we also know that our God is the Lord over the whole history because he has decreed all these things. And eventually all these persecutions and injustices will one day come to an end. God's enemies would be completely destroyed and he would vindicate his name. So to conclude, we have seen how Daniel 9 shows a helpful pattern to follow when we pray. And it brings us comfort in the same way that it would have brought comfort for Daniel and the rest of God's people back then. But we should also remember this, that this passage is not just for believers. If you are sitting here and have not yet put your trust in Jesus, let me encourage you to see in God the merciful, loving, and gracious Creator who forgives those who humble themselves, confess their sins, and repent of them. Fall before the mercy of God and trust in Jesus, for he is coming back. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for reminding us that like Daniel, we are to always remember that you are sovereign over the whole history. That everything is under your control. Thank you for reminding us that you are a faithful God who would fulfill his promises. We thank you for reminding us that even though we may not see the complete fulfillment of those promises in our time, we know that one day they would eventually be come to pass. Father, thank you for reminding us that despite the difficulties, hardships, and persecution that we might face, because of our faith and trust in your Son, we can have the confidence that one day all these injustices and persecutions would come to an end. Father, thank you for reminding us that because of your son's death on the cross, we have the guarantee that our sins have been fully paid for and that we are forgiven. And your son's righteousness would be ours when we stand before you. And Father, we pray that you continue to remind us to look forward to the day where we would spend an eternity in your presence, worshiping and glorifying you forever in a world with no pain, no evil, and no suffering. And Father, we pray all this in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.